Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And with us is a special guest, Joe Dimitier. Joe, welcome to Cultural Capital. Hi, both of you. Thank you for having me back today. Thanks for coming, Joe. Yes, it's excellent to have you here to help us discuss Warwick Thornton's Sweet Country, to help us uh, share our Cultural Capital film diary and count down our top three films set in the world of fashion. But first, let's fasten our cummerbunds, tighten our corsets and look at the film that's inspiring that list, Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. Secrets. Good morning. Will you have dinner with me? Yes. Phantom Thread is the eighth feature film from writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson, or as he's more frequently known on the internet, PTA. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis, arguably the world's greatest living actor, as Reynolds Woodcock, a couturier in London in the mid-1950s. It's Day-Lewis's second collaboration with PTA after 2007's There Will Be Blood, and Phantom Thread was an idea they came up with together. Not long before the film's US release, Day-Lewis announced his retirement from acting. And it's difficult not to feel sad about this news now, in light of his very sublime performance here. The House of Woodcock makes high-end fashion for princesses, baronesses, and the very rich. It's a rarefied world, carefully controlled by Reynolds's loyal sister, Cyril, played by the formidable Leslie Manville, to support his work and his fastidious ways. There's no denying that Reynolds is a demanding man. He's a confirmed bachelor with mummy issues. But in Day-Lewis's hands, he's far more than the cliched, sensitive, troubled genius. We meet Reynolds as he tires of one muse and is about to find an another, Alma, played by the extraordinary Luxembourgian actress Vicky Creeps. She's a waitress at a country hotel where she takes his enormous breakfast order. It's part seduction, part test, and she's as fascinated with him as he is with her. And soon enough, he's taking her measurements and moving her into his atelier. But Alma disrupts and transforms Reynolds' world in ways he didn't bargain for. She's strong-willed and refuses to be simply decorative. Has he finally met his match? Alma does find ingenious ways to shift the balance of power between them in her favour. With shades of Du Maurier via Hitchcock, 1950s melodrama and post-war British cinema, Phantom Thread is a beautiful, twisted psychodrama, part gothic romance, part nightmare. Did you both fall under its delicious spell? Well, I just want to say first up that I am not currently wearing a corset, although <laughs> I've always been curious about them and I would like to wear one one day. So if anyone's got any lying around, please give me a call. Yeah, or um, just let us know, cultural capital podcast at gmail.com. Yes, but I really did like this film a lot and I had kind of done no um, research into what it was, what it was going to be, so w without having any prior knowledge of what it was like, I was very surprised by it. In, in addition to all of those things that you kind of said about it and where it falls and where PTA's references are going, I mean, I think this film is very much a women's picture. You know, if we look back to the 40s and 50s and it's set in the 
fifties. Yeah, mid fifties. I yeah. think nineteen fifty five around then. Yeah, I mean yeah. we can I think we can see that it's completely there and though it is um Daniel Day Lewis gives a brilliant performance, PTA has said that it is actually Vicky oh it's Alma's yeah. film. So Vicky Creeps does yeah. and a brilliant job at, at performing. The Reynolds character or often says what he wants and what he needs but but alma never does you just see it in her eyes and in the way her mouth moves Mm. and the way her her face looks at things and and feels we never really know what she's thinking but we can feel it and that it is very much about her yeah i totally agree i think she's a protagonist that really constantly surprises like there is so much that's elusive about her and enigmatic and being london in the 1950s in the upper the echelons of the class society a lot of the stuff is repressed and kept secret and so when she pulls out these particular moves that she does they're like chess moves that are just perfect at shifting the balance so it's interesting to see at the beginning it's very much on his terms and he's dazzling her in it, or he thinks he's dazzling her but <laughs> ultimately you know you'd never really the entire thing could have been a play totally constructed by alma from the very, very beginning not to give away what you know various twists that occur through the story but it is this constant shifting uh, balance of powers and the almost mother-like figure of his sister, Cyril, who like Leslie Manville, who's just wonderful. She had such a um, Mrs. Danvers vibe about her. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's excellent. Um, she gave a really brilliant performance as well. Like, it was like they were all holding the trump card yes. um, mm. at every single moment yeah. of the film and none of them was drawing it. Which was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the really strong things about this film is the way that it shifts perspective between the three characters equally and you don't really ever feel lost or like you're missing out on anybody's story. And I think it's just a real testament to actually how fine a filmmaker he is that he's able to locate such strong tension in basically what's just happening between characters. I mean, it's practically a chamber piece. I mean, we barely leave the house. We, we exit that Fitzroy Square townhouse on several occasions but mostly we're in the home and all of the tension is located on what the characters are doing rather than any kind of external factors which I think is quite brilliant and quite difficult to do well and it's just magnificent I think. Yeah that's really true. I think that Vicky Creeps um, and Alma the character reminded me a lot of Anne Baxter in All About Eve. Mm. You know, I mean, she's kind of this character who doesn't show her cards and you think that at at first she's really demure and she's just, she just wants opportunity in the world. You know, eventually you come to realise that she's in fact scheming her um, advancement and that she's not letting on a lot. Um, And I think that there's a really interesting parallel. Yeah, something that I thought was interesting was this notion of spiralling. The staircase goes down the middle of the building in which, Joe, you said, you know, it was almost like a chamber piece or a theatrical mm. production a lot of the time. These dresses and the hairstyles all tend to, like, be these curves and then the very first plate that we see, the title Phantom Thread is done in this sort of cursive thing. And Johnny Greenwood's score is constantly moving in this sort of circular motion. And so you get these... Even though the camera never actually moves in this sort of shape, you're constantly getting these insularity of a spiral but turning inward and, you know, this tension it keeps building and building. Um, and that's what really helped me get through the two hours, ten minutes, because the running time is quite long. And th- there isn't a lot of action, but you know, a lot of this stuff is based on dialogue or things that are unsaid or movements and things that are unseen. But you've got this constant tension that's going along with the way that the house is portrayed and the, the dresses that keep being the focus of everybody's attention that is the most important thing of all. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I didn't think of that, but, you know, that kind of suggestion that the convex nature of their operations and the machinations in the house mm. is is what is driving this film. And, you know, you're right, it is slow. I didn't notice it being a particularly long film. 
But if that's the running time, then that's what it is. But you're like it completely – I was mm. completely taken under by, by all of it. But that is something that PTA has proven time and again that he's extremely good at mm-hmm. is getting this particular cinematic trope and, and containing it to a, to a certain film. Like he doesn't do the same thing over and over again by any means. But obviously he's constructed this incredibly um, rich film that, that does just build from itself. Yeah, even in the opening scenes where we're getting these kind of piano motifs from Johnny Greenwood and the camera's going down the staircase following people and then following other people as they pass them back up again, you're kind of introduced, brought into this world and you see how tight it is and then you know the external protagonists will come in and out, like the women will come in and look at the clothes and then they'll try them on and they'll leave again. So people are constantly coming to them. It's this really interesting way of putting, putting together a production and it really feels like a production from the inside as well as, you know, PTA is obviously putting it all together. And it's amazing, I think, the way that he captures British class society of the 50s, having never lived there, to my knowledge, not even visited there that many times, to be able to get that sort of Germanic upper-class nature of yeah. <laughs> which kind of comes through in the, in the voice of, you know, Creeps as well as um, Reynolds. Yeah, what do you think, Joe? Well, he's a big fan of the movies of that period. I was reading an article in Sight and Sound today, an interview with him and... He was just talking a little bit about some of the influences um, on the film and, you know, he's very... um, He's a great fan of David Lean's Brief Encounter but also a lesser-known film of his, The Passionate Friends, which I saw on Mubi a couple of years ago. We saw it on Mubi a few years Which I really loved. Blew my mind. Yeah, that was a brilliant film. And I did see that come up in some Twitter conversation a few weeks ago. Perhaps this is why. It's primarily the New Year's Eve party scene. There's a scene that's shot at the same Chelsea Arts Ball Gala. I don't know if that's the identical name for it. but Amazing. It's the same sort of scene. Yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic scene in Passionate Friends. Nice one. Yeah. (laughs) Did you both find it as funny as I did? I mean, I laughed... Very funny. And that was one of the most surprising things about it was I didn't think I was going in to see something that was so blackly humorous, but... No, neither. And same... I I mean, I had the same experience when I went to see The Beguiled uh, last year, the Sofia Coppola film, which we did talk about on this podcast, that I didn't know that that was going to be a black comedy. And it actually took me about half the running time to realise that it was, in fact, a black comedy. Same thing with Phantom Thread. I don't think I realised. People were laughing in the cinema. We were in a full cinema. And people were laughing and... At first, I didn't really understand it, and I thought, "Oh, is this laughter interfering? <laughs> is this laughter interfering with my viewing experience? Is it a response that I wouldn't be having if I was not in a full cinema?" But but after a while, I realised that he's just was being very clever um, with the way he was presenting information and making characters relate to one yeah. another. And DDL's um, delivery of those scathing lines is, you know, he knows the power he can wield with those um, those lines, but it was just. Very, very funny. Yeah, it was great. Uh, so I was also reminded of The Beguiled um, because mm. of, without spoiling anything, I'll just say one word, mushrooms. <laughs> but also uh, the, yeah. the way the DDL delivers some of these, like you were saying, like, <laughs> yeah. are you a secret agent? Yeah. Where's your gun? Show me your gun. That's sort of right. <laughs> it's just bizarre. I was one of the very few people in a packed cinema that was laughing. I don't think many people got it. Right. Kind of, we had know. a lot of laughers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we yeah. did. <laughs> we had a bit of a, a bit of a... Um, outrageous laugher. Yeah. Joe and I saw it together. <laughs> mm, right. Okay. No, I got in quite a big argument after that, saying I thought it was really funny, and the person I saw it with was like, "I don't find abusive relationships funny." Right. See, just I shut that down. <laughs> I didn't see it as an abusive relationship no, at all. I. I saw it as no. a very loving um, relationship. Both of them needed what, what they were giving each yeah. other. Mm. 
and that I think it's beautiful, a portrait. Yeah, for me, it's actually, uh, you know, it's been about five days, I think, since we saw it, and the thing that has stuck with me now is really this quite, this quite strong sense that it's actually a deeply romantic film, um, which once you've seen it, you'll think, well, maybe Joanna's just totally <laughs> crazy. What's her idea of romance? But, you know, you've got two people here who really, they're equally perverse in some ways, and... And so I think the film is kind of drunk on this idea of how they surrender to each other quite willingly. You know, one is willing to let the other mm. do things to them and, you know, it's it's definitely, I don't see it as an abusive relationship and it's definitely not, let's not paint it really quickly as here's the troubled genius artist and his subservient muse because it's not that film at all and if that's the sense that people get from the trailer, well, I think that trailer you know, is basically <laughs> trying to mess with your head. You know, that's not the movie you're going to see. It's not um, a film that's solely about fashion and pretty dresses. You know, it's a lot more than that. And, you know, these are two very flawed, yearning humans and they're basically my favourite kind of people to spend time <laughs> with at the cinema. So, you know, this was basically my mm. kind of film. Speaking of other flawed, yearning humans yes, um, and things about the film that stuck with me, I was really, really drawn to the character of Barbara Rose. Yes. Played yeah. by Harriet Sansom Harris, who I believe is modelled on Barbara Hutton. Oh. Um, okay. And her marriage at the time to a rich playboy whose name mm. escapes me. That's, you know, the ver- first time you see her, I think, this Barbara Rose character, she's in a press conference about her marriage to this man. And again, you can see the black comedy coming through where he's, you know, they're accusing him of marrying her for her money. And he's like, I've got my own money. Why would I need to marry someone else for, for someone else's money? <laughs> I'm rich. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just really excellent. But I love this actress Harris who plays her I got into a conversation uh, no I didn't get into a conversation but um, this uh, woman on Twitter Sheila O'Malley had posted about her performance Mm. and I started kind of a bit of a back and forth but had said that you know she's such a wonderful actress and that she gives maybe a similar performance in an episode of Six Feet Under where Mm, she only has a few scenes and is a really small character but, like, builds her up and makes her completely understandable that what she does, perhaps in the, you know, in the hands of a lesser actress, would seem slightly clichéd or, or scripted, but, but in the hands of Harriet Sansom Harris is just, you know, brilliant mm. and so evocative and so painful in what she's going through and I think you see that in this Barbara Rose character as well she's you know she's larger than life she's kind of funny you know you could make fun of her and she's a woman getting married for the second time I think and you can see that she's struggling and that I mean you can see in her face that she doesn't really maybe doesn't doesn't like this man or at least doesn't know where she's going in her life I mean, we see her through the eyes of Reynolds and Alma. And there's a really interesting thing that happens Mm. with Reynolds and Alma's relationship in relation to this Barbara Rose character. But seeing her and having her, you know, as this amazing dynamic character is is just incredible. Yeah, it is fascinating the way that that opens up this whole extra dimension. In fact, it reminded me a bit of a film we may hear about later, um, Bill Cunningham's uh, documentary about the fashion photographer who was constantly reminding people that it wasn't about celebrity, it wasn't about the people, it was about the dress it was always about what the dress meant and where you know what it represented. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting that to see this um, this reflected in in a really kind of per- almost perverse way between Reynolds and Alma. 
there's a point of view that, that they unite over. Yeah, that's true. But uh, what I love is that she's not simply a, a plot device yes, for Venus exactly, and Alma, yeah. that she is very much her own person in yeah. this. Mm. Um, but we can't really move on, I don't think, without talking about breakfast. <laughs> the role of breakfast in this film. I was really sad that, that, you know, Joe, you mentioned he ordered a very large breakfast. Yeah, He's a very hungry boy. He is a very hungry boy. But we never got to see him eat it. <laughs> no, I would have liked to have seen it come to the table, I agree. And I went home after watching the film and I had to have an omelette because I was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't don't go and see this movie on an empty stomach. No, there's um, a lot of food. There's a lot of food. There's a lot of talking about food. I mean, food's always a, a visual shorthand in the movies for sex, but... And, you know, it is here too, but it's also more. It's, you know, about what binds people together. But it never makes together. it that obvious. It's just no, it never, sensual that's right. experience. Yeah, yeah. it's not nine and a half weeks, let's just say that now. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and, you know, because Reynolds is really – he's like a man who's kind of ruled by his appetites, I think. And Well, a child almost. He is childlike, mm. yeah. yeah. Well, just that pregnant pause before he adds the final – Order for that interesting <laughs> thing. Um, and some sausages. And yeah. Sausages. <laughs> yeah. That might have been the first time I laughed. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe the second. <laughs> um, but yes, every time we have tea breakfast, we take the temperature of the house and see how yeah. things have shifted. And this is great device to be able to pull things back to see where appetites are uh, mm. and whether how dynamic is. It's true. Mm. Yes, it's a wonderful, wonderful example of yeah. how sure his vision is. Yeah. I think, anyway, what you can say about this film is like, don't have any preconceptions. Because whatever they are, they'll be incorrect. So just go in and, and let the senses take over. Yeah, enjoy it. You're in the hands of people who know what they're doing. Mm, yeah, And please don't retire, Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> and now, ever so elegantly and with the utmost attention to detail, the Cultural Capital Film Diary. At ACME, you can catch two very different political documentaries. The Final Year is a fly-on-the-wall account of the last months of Obama's foreign policy team as they prepare to leave office. That's screening until February 13th. We Don't Need a Map is Brendan Fletcher and Warwick Thornton's irreverent look at Australia's cultural and political landscape and the significance of the Southern Cross, and that screens until February 6th. You might recall hearing us discuss ACME's Agnes Varda season Life is Art on a previous episode. That's at ACME until February 10th. And is there such a thing as too much Kate Blanchett? Probably not, but you can find out by catching Manifesto, Blanchett's acclaimed series of artistic monologues. Over at the Astor, there are some cracking double bills. Sunday, February 4th, you can catch Mildred Pierce and The Women. On the 7th, we have another Miyazaki double bill, this time Howl's Moving Castle and Kiki's Delivery Service. And on Valentine's Day, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better night out than catching the 30th anniversary screening of Heather's. Eloise, rumour is Melbourne Cinematheque is back. It's true, and I believe that there is maybe even a better offering for Valentine's Day Please educate um, that the Melbourne Cinematheque can offer you. So the very first season of 2018 is focus on Jeanne Moreau, the French actress who very sadly passed away last year. So there's six films, five starring her and one directed by her. She only had three directorial features, two features and one documentary. So that should be really excellent. But Valentine's Day, the reason I'm kind of so happy about it is because I love Valentine's Day screenings that are very ironic and <laughs> in fact, you know, something to do with black comedy rather than rather than any, uh, any old rom-com. Anyway, that's the first season coming up and then John Cassavetes as well. So there's some really exciting stuff. Um, tell me where to go to find out more. You can go to acme.net.au or melbournecinematech.org to find out more. Uh, we host our screenings at Acme, uh, which, as you've heard, has a really great selection of films coming up.
Phillips is dead. That black fella Sam killed him. You see it? No. Sorry, sir. There's been a shooting. We gonna catch this murder? Yes, boss. When? Real soon, boss. Sam's way smarter than we are. All these days, we never come within two miles of him. We'll be sitting out there now, looking at you, laughing. I'm not going back. I know he's here somewhere. I'm gonna get him. Sam, coming for you. It won't be long. It won't be long, Sam! Why did you run, Mr. Kelly? I shot a white fella. Following his acclaimed 2009 feature directorial debut, Samson and Delilah, Warwick Thornton went on to make documentaries and shorts and a few artistic installations before returning with a second feature, Sweet Country. Set in 1929 in the Northern Territory, it follows Indigenous farmhand Sam Kelly, played by Hamilton Morris, on the run after he kills piggish racist war veteran Harry March, Ewan Leslie, in self-defence. Sam is accompanied by his wife, Lizzie, Natasia Gory Ferber, and chased, if that's the word, for there is never any doubt that he won't be able to better these foreigners on his land, by an aggressive sergeant, Brian Brown, a conflicted landowner, Mick, Thomas M. Wright, and kindly teetotaling Christian Fred Smith, played by Sam Neill. This is a brutal film, unrelenting in its criticism of Australia's racist history, but also understanding of and almost sympathetic to white people's struggles to exist on a difficult land. At a slow pace, Sweet Country builds to an ending that all Australians and fans of the Western genre will be unsurprised by. But it is Thornton's command of the film form that gives it its richness. Joe, what do you think of Sweet Country? Yeah, I have to say I was really impressed by this film. I mean, I love Westerns. As you know, I think last time, one of the last times I was on the show, we were talking about them. Um, I think this is a really important movie, but I don't think films should be like medicine, so I don't want to push the line like, go and see this because it's good for you to see it. Go and see it because it's a great work of art. It's a supremely beautiful, subtle, at times quite meditative evocation of this nation's still unreckoned with history. And as a work of visual storytelling, uh, don't think I've seen something quite that stunning in Australia for a very long time. What I loved about Samson and Delilah was this way it was able to take things that we would consider quite ugly in inverted commas to look at and make them beautiful and cinematic and evocative and immersive. And there's some images in this film in Sweet Country that are just... um, they seem sort of like they, they don't make sense, um, you know, like the opening scene, for example, which is really, really powerful and is a really interesting way to open a Western. You know, it's kind of like a close-up. I don't know if you want me to talk about in detail, but, yeah. you know, it's a close-up on a boiling water that we add black tea and white sugar to and it's basically bubbling up. So, you know, you've got a quite perhaps a quite unsubtle metaphor or symbol of what we're about to see, but at the same time, I've never seen anything like that. And you certainly haven't seen anything like that to open a Western. And then there's other images throughout the film that are juxtaposed together that are really powerful. Different scenes of ropes which carry different meanings. Really interesting scene um, where a character is raped, where the screen goes completely black, which was really powerful. 
and you know what you said just to pick up on what you said about um the sort of empathy for also the white Australians. It's it's interesting the way that he is able to open up all the perspectives of all the characters in the film, and not to the detriment of anyone. Yeah, I was really I was really impressed with it. And yeah, it's yeah. it's really wonderful. But you know, I think it's important to stress that it's not as though he lets white people off no. the hook, which is you know what a lot of films might do. Yeah, that he's just perhaps suggesting how things got this way. Yeah. Um, yeah, Andy. Well, yeah. I mean, it was my number two film of last year, so I'm I'm on the record oh. as being a huge fan of this because I managed to see it at an earlier screening. I, mean, I have to agree with everything you're saying, but also it's just so easy to go. It's important, you know. It's mm. you know, it's, it's a story that's difficult for us to look at. And it's you know, Caucasian Australians and that sort of thing. But there's just so much going on here. They're so mm. inventive. The editing is brilliant. The the sound design you're kind of taken th- by the hand through this story, which. On the surface, it does seem like it's quite black and white, you know, for one mm. of a better term. But then you get this strata of, of characters. So there's, you know, it's not just that they're so simple. That's the one thing that really drove me through the, through the story was this idea that there was this constant tension building and building and never really quite resolving. And then there'll be these sudden acts of violence that were kind of quite natural, almost mm. as natural as, as some of the vistas that you were seeing that were just so casually rendered. And they weren't like hallucinatory, they weren't ominous. You were looking at the outback, but it's not a horror movie. But at the same time, you know, it's kind of it's hard to dissociate it from being a, an Australian, a part of a film that's part of the Australian film industry. When there's so much cynicism about the Australian film industry, and it's not like you know a f- production that's using animal logic for its special effects and therefore getting a government kickback and or riding on the coattails of some sort of foreign celebrity that's coming in and lending a bit of glamour to an Australian production. It's this totally, totally hermetic production, and it's brilliant. It just blew me away. Yeah, yeah. Warwick Thornton is a really special filmmaker and it's really great that he is, you know, has made this film again. I know uh, Samson and Delilah was very, uh, uh, you know, it made waves and made a lot of great waves, which was great. But it, and it, um, narratively, it was a, related to hearing and listening because it was about this character who, you know, was struggling in that way. So I was really, really anticipating Sweet Country because of this factor specifically. And even though it has a different sound design team, obviously Warwick Thornton is really attuned to sound and to what sound can do. And as you were saying, Joe, there are a Mm. lot of things that kind of occur where you don't see anything happen, but you know you get Mm. a feeling and then it's, it's narrated to you via sound effects. There are things that occur, like the opening scene um, and the rape that occurs. Yeah. And there are other other things that are told and developments that are made via sound rather than via image, you know, rather than all we get maybe is, is a landscape and we're told things via sound. And that's what's really, really brilliant. But talking of sound, I think that one of this film's weaknesses is the script and some of the characters aren't particularly well built. And I think that's in service of the story or mm. because certain things had to come across. Because it is basically Sam Kelly's story um, and him being on the run that there are other characters who aren't particularly well built like the Ewan Leslie character. Uh, I wanted to say Fred March, but it's Fred Smith is Sam Neill and no, Harry March. Harry. He's not particularly well built. He's a returned soldier and he is shell-shocked and he, you know, I feel like he's set up like someone who has an ex- excuse to be such a, a horrible racist character because he's been through hell at war, which is maybe not quite fair to say about anyone involved. But, oh, the reason I kind of made the segue was that the screenwriter for this was David Tranter, who was a sound designer. He worked on Samson and Delilah. And this was his first feature that he'd written and I just, maybe that was something to do with it. 
I think you're right because in my thinking about the film since seeing it, it is more about the visual elements and the form that I've sort of, you know, that it's resonated with me rather than particular character development or, you know, even dialogue. Yeah, and maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's what's important. Like, you know, how many stories can be told in the world, you know, and how many characters can can do things differently and how much can you fit into two hours of time, that kind of thing. So, so, you know, maybe it is okay that it's more of a visual and oral experience. And even through an image, you're able to convey something new and you're able to, you know, make your audience see things and think about things differently. Yeah, I agree. I think it is the weakest part of the film. When I think back, it's images that I recall, mm. like mm. not not so much the dialogue. And I do remember thinking at the time it is a little clunky and a bit simplistic, and it's we need to get this from A to B quite quickly, so we'll have fairly direct dialogue. Mm. I mean, some of the dialogue was really really powerful. Like, what hope has this country got? Yeah. You know, I mean, that kind of thing just sears uh, into you. And what do you think about the? I mean, there's this moment about midway through the film where they're go back to the main town and uh, watching the 1906 film story of the Kelly Gang uh, and about halfway through it gets interrupted because Brian Brown, sergeant, is fed up. You know, he's tired and he's failed in his plight. But there's this very clear link that we celebrate a murderer who goes on the run if they're a white man, but if they're a black man, they're, they're not. They're expected to to hide basically and that it's expected that we aren't going to celebrate them so it's very clearly made mm. uh, but it's not as though it's on the nose or anything no it's really kind of bound with the competing mythologies of christianity and, and indigenous law and mm. the two competing existence of justice that are kind of explored in this film as well yeah yeah it's yeah it's fascinating it's really interesting there's keeps being more more depth to it the more you analyze i think yeah this film um and phantom thread i both uh, both of them i really want to go back and see again I think I really have done, you know, done a lot for me. Yeah, well, both repay, reviewing. So for our top three, we decided to look at films and documentaries set in the world of fashion. Uh, For mine, I nearly included a film we reviewed back in episode 12, The Neon Demon. Nicholas Winding reference (laughs) vampiric thriller about an aspiring model who moves to LA. Were you a bit scared of what I would say? Well, I didn't anticipate it would go down particularly well, but also (laughs) there are better films. (laughs) But um, unlike a lot of others that are content to document the beauty on show as honestly as possible, um, that film kind of gets creative as well, which I thought is a good point. If you can just not represent and or be enthralled to to the fashion industry or th- or clothes in general but actually examine them and bring your own voice to it i think is the important thing ello would you like to talk to us about your number three yeah i'll start my number three is cover girl charles adore's film from 1944 it's a columbia picture starring vita hayworth but is perhaps most famous for gene kelly's role in the production choreography um, set up of certain numbers and what he went on to do with what he'd learned and demanded <laughs> on that film to do in, in future productions. It's kind of a very silly film, um, although it's very popular and it got a number of Academy Award nominations. Narratively, it's about a girl from Brooklyn called Rusty, played by Rita Hayworth. She's got red hair. <laughs> um, working in a nightclub who gets an opportunity to, I suppose, 
quite directly, she gets an opportunity to ascend in the class ranking and move to Manhattan. So Eve Arden is a modelling agent for the cover girl for fashion magazine Vanity. And the editor of the magazine, played by Otto Kruger, says, I want a girl with a story in her eyes. So it's very much, and I think we'll see this possibly in all of the films we talk about, at least in mine that I've chosen, is that this idea of um, the fashion industry is very tied to ideas of class and kind of upward mobility and transformation. Um, I mean, even in kind of smaller roles, there's that, that link between the makeover um, and transformation, mm. personality transformation or, or being transformation. So you kind of have that from the very beginning, that thing that, that a story is always embedded in, in the import of, of someone's clothing or how someone presents themselves. Um, so anyway, Rita Hayworth in this movie has gone from nightclub girl to fashion model um, and it's considered a big switch. She's obviously rich now. She's, people send her dresses because she's, quote-unquote, she's in the industry. But anyway, it's kind of a really great movie and there's not all that much about the fashion industry in there, but I do like it because it has that one link to, well, being a cover girl and suggesting the power of the industry to kind of change your life. Cool. Gowns by Travis Batten. Um, oh, nice one. Yeah, we should actually add, mm, put mm. that in. Oh, yeah. and also Muir King and Gwen Wakeling, but I don't know who they are. <laughs> uh, anyway... <laughs> Well, my number three is a film that really is not about the fashion industry at all. It's The Women, the 1939 film directed by George Cukor. And I've chosen this because despite not being a film about the fashion industry, it features a very famous sequence that happens almost halfway through the film, a 10-minute sequence in a black-and-white film that's shot in Technicolor of a fashion show that most of the women in the film uh, attend. So it's based on um, a Claire Booth play of the same name and it's adapted for the screen by Anita Luz and Jane Murfin. So there's a lot of great women involved in this, even though George Cukor is obviously not a woman. Um, but he is one of the great directors of the women's pictures and of musicals and comedies. Um, so you might know that he directed things like Little Women, Sylvia Scarlet, Camille, The Philadelphia Story, Adam's Rib, Pat and Mike, A Star is Born with Judy Garland and My Fair Lady. And he was also famously fired um, during the early uh, part of the process of Gone with the Wind. Um, he was also famously gay. He was, oh. yes. It was one of those <laughs> open secrets in mm. Hollywood. The Women also has an all-female cast, right down to the animals, apparently, and featured many of the top actresses of the, of the day from the MGM stable, for want of a better word, um, including Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell. Maybe Joan you Fon should have said kennel. The kennel, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Next time. Joan Fontaine and Paulette Goddard. So the film probably wouldn't pass the Bechdel test, let's be honest, because all the women do is talk about men, but... It's a great film of its time and wildly funny and it has fabulous costumes but in this particular sequence the women, as I said, attend this fashion show and that's quite a strong feature of a lot of women's pictures um, of that era. I know you've read this book, Eloise, uh, A Woman's View, How Hollywood Spoke to Women. 1930 to 1960 by Janine Bassinger, but she points out how common these fashion parade sequences were in those films and that women went to these movies expecting to see, you know, all of these tremendous clothes on show. So 
This one features some pretty outlandish designs um, by the costume designer Adrian, who went by one name, and he was famously known for his designs for The Wizard of Oz, um, including the ruby slippers, and also he gave Joan Crawford that sort of very angular uh, silhouette that we've come to associate with her and her massive shoulder pads. Um, so this sequence, just it's basically just a fashion show and the women sit down and watch it and then they have a look at some of the clothes up close once the sequence then goes back into black and white. And um, what I think is really interesting about it is how it seems sort of bizarre to watch this film that's then interrupted by a fashion parade but also completely not bizarre. And as Bassinger said... Um, some of the clothing is so exaggerated. It might as well be from the land of Oz, but it's all really wonderful. Mm, and yeah. I think it's worth a look. Apparently, just a tidbit of mm. info, and I know this from my friend Lee Gambon, who is a film historian and written books on, on classical Hollywood. The women contained the first reference in film to rabies. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Anyway... <laughs> That's what you come to cultural capital for. That's the edge. <laughs> that will definitely enhance my viewing of the film next time. <laughs> yes. um, so my number three is one of uh, a spate of documentaries that came out over the last decade about the fashion industry and I've chose uh, RJ Cutler's The September Issue because it doesn't just go, oh, the fashion industry isn't as glamorous as you think it is. It goes much deeper into that and starts to look at one of the key women behind it, um, the uh, Vogue editor Anna Wintour who has become you know, like almost a caricature now of modern mm. fashion. And so actually getting to know her is kind of is really interesting and seeing what a closeted upbringing she had and how she was almost kind of railroaded into this position because of her father was a well-known publisher. Uh, and so it just focuses on the production of the September issue of Vogue and how those decisions are made. And the tensions and the creative energy between Grace Coddington and Anna Wintour I think is, is worth just coming in alone, seeing, seeing how different they are, but how the talents coalesce to be able to produce you know, this global leading fashion bible. Um, and it's pretty easy to come by that. I think it's often on streaming services. And if you haven't seen it, then I reckon it's a really good introduction to what fashion documentaries can be doing in the last decade. Great. I haven't seen mm. it, so oh, it's really? going on my list. I'll do. Yeah, it's a very yeah. easy watch. Okay, great. <laughs> well, uh, my number two may be an easy watch, maybe not, depending on your, um, I guess, uh, your patience, is Mahogany. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, <laughs> I look, I don't think it's necessarily one surprised. of the top three, but um, I have no idea what it is. It definitely needs to be talked about, I think. So this is directed, was meant to be directed by Tony Richardson. Joe, uh, but he stepped. He either stepped down or was fired by producer the Motown Records founder Barry Gordy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this was a 1975 <laughs> starring role for Dinah Ross ah. after she had been nominated for an Academy Award for the Billie Holiday film, um, which was also directed by Barry Gordy. But they'd already been through this chaotic relationship by this point, and so it was a bit of a hot set shall we say basically it's kind of the same story as cover girl if you think about <laughs> it it's about Dinah ross as this poor um, woman working in as a sales girl in chicago but she really wants to be a fashion designer and then anthony perkins comes along and he's like do you want to be a model in rome and so she goes to rome 
and then she's like, don't like you anymore, Anthony Perkins. And she meets this <laughs> other really rich guy who's like, do you want to be a fashion designer? And so she starts designing clothes. And then I think at the end of the day, she like decides that in fact, all she wants is to go back to her hometown um, and marry the the boy that she first loved or something. Anyway, it's some, <laughs> some fairy tale story of kind story of like is. that. So, I mean, what I really love is, I mean, it's very much kind of, uh, you know, deals with a number of, maybe not realistically, but a number of facets of the fashion industry and of what dreams it can offer you and of how it can change your life and give you opportunities. I also really love that you know it's just it's kind of about fashion as transformation um again without dealing with that whole makeover thing you know i mean it's diana ross like she never looks bad i think she also designed all of her own costumes for this film because she as we know from her (laughs) stage shows uh is very in control of whatever she wears at all times but i think she might have done a fashion degree at some point But, I mean, it's kind of has been – I don't know if you would say it's been reclaimed as a camp classic, but there is all of this talk about how it's this very camp movie. But I think in the end it's just – it's great as this kind of star study of Diana Ross. It also stars Nina Fock or Folk. I don't know how you say her name. I never knew. But she's – it has a minor role. So it kind of has a few connections to classical Hollywood. So, like, don't worry, guys. I'm not that far away. Um, (laughs) I was worried. I was worried. But, yeah, I just – I kind of love it for what it's doing with the Diana Ross persona. Um, And just because, you know, obviously it's – I feel like it would be stupid not to say that it's, you know, a black cast and that it's it's part of that whole movement of Mm -hmm. of films um, in the 70s that were giving more roles and taking stories to another perspective yeah. <laughs> i'm definitely looking for this one it's a yeah. bit of fun yeah yeah. yeah yeah i need a bit of fun sometimes yeah oh and diana <laughs> ross i think was nominated for or maybe also one andy maybe you can tell me uh for she sung the song mm. oh, um, yeah for the course. film as well yeah of course right yeah. um but she yeah got an academy nom for she for did it. yeah yeah mm. anyway yeah more films need to have theme songs yes, yes. sung by diana ross well, please Diana Ross stars with Billy D. Williams and Anthony Perkins in this rags-to-riches story of a model torn between love and success in the fashion world. Making clothes for rich people to look at in the magazine? You think any of this crap means anything to these people around here? It means something to me. Do you know where you're going to? Do you like the things that life is showing you? I'm taking maximum pleasure in introducing to you the charming Mahogany. I'm going to be a designer. And so you shall be, my darling. But let's not try to run until we've learned how to stroll down a walkway. 20 million Okay, well, my number two is another of the uh, slew of documentaries that have come out in the last ten years or so about the fashion world, and I chose Bill Cunningham, New York, which came out in 2010. Um... So Bill Cunningham uh, was born in 1929 and he had a long history in the fashion industry, starting out as a designer of women's hats and then a fashion writer and also a co-editor of Details magazine at some point. But he's most well known for his candid photography of street fashion. Um, He would cover New York Fashion Week and society events for the New York Times, but most famously, he was interested in real people on the streets of Manhattan wearing real clothes, and he reflected this in his weekly column for the New York Times called On the Street, um, which he produced from 1989 until his just before his death um, in 2016 at the age of 87. 
Um, it's a really warm, wonderful, fascinating film. Um, I have wonderful memories of it. And it's obviously about how clothes are an expression of individuality. Again, that idea of the ability to transform yourself through what you wear. Um, and obviously, Manhattan is full of wonderful characters. Um, Anna Wintour shows up in this as well, mm. um, makes the famous comment that, you know, we all dress for Bill. And, you know, if you could get into the paper, obviously, why wouldn't you? Um, but what I really like about it is the way he kind of emerges as a sort of democratic hero. Um, he's making his way around the city on his bike, basically always in the same uniform, black sneakers, chinos, I think they're called, and like this blue sort of windbreaker jacket. Um, and spent most of his life living in a teeny tiny apartment in the Carnegie Hall Tower. So I, I really enjoyed about this film almost more than anything was just seeing how despite his close proximity to all of this glamour, he was able to remain outside of that world. And there's these great scenes where you see him at gala events basically just refusing to have anything to eat or drink because he says if you take their money, then they can tell you what to do. Mm, and, um, yeah. you know, he valued his freedom and his integrity and um, I think even the rich and famous ended up respecting that. Yeah. So it's a great yeah. film and he's just a really interesting character. He is, yeah. He's yeah. very, very worthy of a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Fashion is the armour to survive the reality of everyday life. Yeah, I did have that quote written down. But <laughs> <laughs> such a cracker. And yeah. I was waiting for you to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so glad to be able to play into your review. <laughs> um, my number two is the 1957 film by Stanley Donan, um, which is Funny Face, which I think almost more than any other film I could remember from that era is about the insides of the fashion industry. But it's also kind of daft and funny. And every single film about the fashion industry at some point seems to get farcical mm. or just like have to turn around and poke fun at it, even though it's taking it extremely seriously at the same time. Uh, so the ludicrous premise for this film is about a model who's discovered by a fashion editor in a library, oh, in a bookshop, sorry, played by Audrey Hepburn. Fred Astaire is a, a photographer and there's an extremely noticeable age difference. But the story and the pace and the colour and the vibrancy kind of keeps this moving really, really quickly. Um, it also helps that you have kind of trained dancers inhabiting a lot of the clothes. They, there's constant movement. Mm. You can never really get bored, I don't think, looking at it. It kind of knows how ludicrous the fashion industry is and there are lots of songs and extremely beautiful scenes courtesy of uh, Ray June's cinematography. There's, some, there's a lot of points where it gets beyond fairy tale into this kind of point where it's just basically ridiculous. But at the same time, <laughs> this um, art direction and Edith Head's co costumes really kind of elevate this, I think. Um, also, uh, she worked with uh, Givenchy as well on some of Hepburn's dresses. So that kind of ticks the uh, women going to see films for the fashion box. Ladies, take an editorial to the women of America. No, take it to the women everywhere. Banish the black, burn the blue, and bury the beige. From now on, girls... Think pink. Think pink when you shop for summer clothes. Think pink. Think pink if you want that Kelka shows. Red is dead, blue is through, green's obscene, brown's taboo, and there is not the slightest excuse for plum abuse or chartreuse. Think pink, forget that Dior says black and rust. Think pink, who cares if the new look has no bust? Now, I wouldn't presume to tell a woman what a woman ought to think, but tell her if she's got to think. Think pink. Speaking of Fred Astaire, yes. shall I go to my number one? Yes. Please do. My number one is Roberta. Roberta? Directed by William Sita or Sita in 1935. It's an ICO film. I think this was Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers' second picture together. They made ten in total. 
I think this was their second and they still were not Fred and Ginger. Irene Dunn was first billed in this mm. film. Oh. Basically, I've written down the plot and I'm going to read it out from the page because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's even more ridiculous than CoverGirl. Could you Go believe ahead. Sports manager Randolph Scott is... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> ...is for some reason managing an American band in Paris and gets them a job at a nightclub where Ginger Rogers, a childhood friend of Astaire, one of the musicians, is pretending to be Polish, I think, royalty... She's a singer at this nightclub. The reason that they come across Rogers is because she's a demanding client at the fashion house called Roberta, owned by Scott's aunt, Minnie, who he became close to like the previous summer or something. The fashion house is key to this ridiculous narrative because Irene Dunn, who is the lead designer there, um, not the aunt, she's the assistant, wants to derail Scott's relationship with his fiance because she loves him. Why wouldn't you? So she encourages the fiancé, who just randomly shows up one day, to wear a discarded gown that Scott hates. It's a stupid premise, <laughs> but, I mean, how many movies in the 30s were not stupid premises? <laughs> Very few of them. Yeah, true. Anyway, that's what's so great about them. The reason that, like, this is kind of – I mean, it's fully set in a fashion house and the gown, obviously, is that the plot point. The discarded gown is yeah. the key plot point which Dunn kind of uses as leverage to, to get into Scott's good graces. Um, but it's kind of has this really interesting commentary on fashion – and on the way that we see clothes and the way that clothes allow people to be seen in society. So I think at the very beginning, like, and I don't know why Randolph Scott is there, to be honest. He manages sports teams. Um, <laughs> he looks nice. But then Minnie dies, his aunt Minnie dies, and he inherits the, the house. And he's like, no, I don't want to do it. I'm a sports manager. Let Irene Dunn do it. But she's too sad about Scott having a fiancé. Anyway, um, <laughs> but so, so Randall Scott, like, chimes in with all of his opinions about clothes. Um, <laughs> and so does Fred Astaire. But they have this thing where there's this weird newspaper sequence where, as you know, that style at the time was, you, you know, to to kind of tell a, tell a story or advance a narrative without resorting to, like, plotting storytelling, um, you would just have a series of newspaper headlines, like, alerting the viewer mm. to, to where you're at. So there's this newspaper headline, Man's Sommelier Protests Naked Clothes. There's what? another line where Fred Astaire <laughs> says, it's more stimulating to the imagination if clothes clothe. Because, the, you know, I think Minnie is, like, trying to design this, like, style of clothing where a dress didn't have a back or something or, you know, very skimpy, skimpy gowns. And they're all like, no, let's go back to the classics. Right. Um, it's wow. much more elegant if you wear, you know, beautiful clothes with, with glamorous materials kind of thing. Mm. Um, so there's a bit of a commentary on, you know, where fashion is going. And I don't know how historically accurate it is. Mm. It's probably <laughs> ridiculous. But anyway, like, I really... I really quite like that. And then there's a classic women's picture fashion show at the end yep. where all of these women come out wearing gowns, including Irene Dunn. Um, she's great, by the way. Yeah, she always is. She's always yeah. great. May I present myself, Le Marquis de Indiana. I promise to get you a job so you won't tell on me. Okay, Liz. And it's not Liz. Sorry, uh, Princess, uh, Baroness, uh, what is this? You may call me Panka. Tanker. You're welcome. Don't you think this dress does something for me? It'll do something for me. Oh, now, Huck. But this feeling isn't purely... 
<laughs> Did you have any one the films before you say your number one that nearly made your list? Um, yeah, uh, the Bertrand Bonello Saint Laurent film I really oh, liked. Yeah. yeah, I mean it. It does fall trapped to that whole. The deeper we get in, the crazier the fashion world gets. I mean, I was interested in Pret-a-Porter, the Robert Altman film, which I don't think is great, but has a few interesting things to talk about. Mannequin, which is <laughs> what? set... Really? Well, uh, yeah, I used to watch Mannequin. Kim Cattrall. Yes, Kim Cattrall. Amazing. The oh Mannequin God. Who Comes to Life. I used to watch a lot when I was in high school. So it's going to stop us now. Yeah, and that great song at the end. I mean, it's not really about fashion, but it's more about window dressing. <laughs> but I think that was about it. Yeah, fair I enough. mean, but yeah, there's actually a lot of movies. Yeah, there are. Yeah. Hmm. So what was your number one? Well, my number one is about a fashion designer, but you never see her wielding a pencil and there's really very little, again, to do with the industry specifically. But um, I've chosen The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, the 1972 film by Rainer Werner Fassbinder, Mm. which I saw at the Cinematheque a few years ago for the first time and I've sort of never stopped thinking about since. So she's another person a bit like Reynolds Woodcock, Petra is uh, also quite a difficult person. This is also a film that takes place in an increasingly claustrophobic space and details a a psychologically complex relationship. So it's a slightly autobiographical film because Fassbinder based it on a relationship that he had. Um, Obviously, it's gender reversed because it's between Petra and a woman. And it, it was based on a play that he wrote the year before when he was like 25 years old. So he was producing some pretty powerful, intense work from a fairly young age. And most of the film takes place in her bedroom or on her bed. And Petra's played by Margit Carstensen. I'm sure that's I've just committed a crime against German there. Um, and also is another film that features an all-female cast, including a series of mannequins who, like the live actors in the film, strike various poses at various points in the film. So it's basically kind of tracks this relationship she has with her co-designer, Marlene, who's played by um, Fassbinder regular Erm Herman, who doesn't... I don't think she says a word throughout the entire film, but Petra treats her like she's basically her slave and her servant um, rather than her co-worker. And then another woman enters the picture. Her name's Karen, and she's played also by a Fassbinder regular, Hannah... Shigula, I think is how you say her name, and she wants to be a model. Petra falls in love with her and she moves in. And then what basically ensues is this kind of emotional time bomb and a love triangle and a kind of brutal, sadomasochistic exploration of codependency that's completely exacerbated by this claustrophobic environment. Um, There's also the very strong influence of Douglas Sirk in this film, which was a director that Fassbinder discovered around this time. And you can see it from the colour palette of the movie and also the wild emotional kind of register that it has. And it also has a bit of a dreamlike quality at times. Um, I really love this film. It's also probably suggesting that I'm quite disturbed. Um, (laughs) but, But I really, you know, I like these movies that kind of detail the way love brings people undone, um, yeah, it's uncomfortable viewing at time. It has beautiful cinematography by Michael Bellhaus and stunning costume design. But ultimately what's more interesting about this movie is what lies beneath the surface rather than on the surface. And mm-hmm. it has an amazing final scene with the, uh, the great pretender by the platters oh, playing great. along. Yeah. That overlaps a lot with my number one too, which is not so cool. much about the fashion industry. It's about how we look at things and it has a great final scene. And this is uh, a 1966 film by Michelangelo Antonioni, <laughs> which is, as you can probably imagine, blow up. 
So that's um, mm. not so much set in the fa- in the fashion industry, but it's about a fashion photographer, and it ostensibly is sort of a murder mystery. But it's you get drawn in, and it ends up being much more about the process of applying meaning to objects and taking objects out of space and recontextualizing things. And constantly through the film, objects are move move in and out of these sorts of scenarios, which enable you know, which changes the way that you impo- impose meaning on them. So it's an extremely cerebral film in some ways, mm. but at the same time, you kind of can enjoy it as a sort of a mod classic, in which you know this fashion photographer goes from this life of easy sex and plenty of drugs and hanging out with Jane Birkin and various other you know luminaries of the period, to being about this desperate need to apply meaning to his life and his work and. Um, how that is kind of imposed by society, seeing him as this kind of trendy guy, but also the vacuousness of of what he's doing for most of the time. So he's got he's got this kind of political leftist leanings as well, and he has a lot of belief in the work that he does that isn't to do with the fashion industry, and he kind of feels compelled to do this because of the commercial success that he's having. But overall, it's basically about his scopophilia and the mm. viewer's scopophilia as well, where you're desperately trying to find out: is this? Did he see a murder, or didn't he? You know, you know what's going to happen to the various other people that he's around, and even so, when he goes to see a band like the Yardbirds play live in this club, the thing that you know, the, the Jeff Beck smashes a guitar, and he gets given the neck of the guitar, and everybody wants this object, but as soon as it's out of the venue on the street, nobody cares, and he just throws it on the ground, and it's a piece of trash. And so this this idea that you can you know kind of move these objects that people were particularly in the 60s where people were getting so materialistic and there was so much drive to be cool and to be trendy and to have you know great hair and great clothes and all that sort of <laughs> stuff and essentially it's just all meaningless and vacuous and the final scene which i won't give away is mm. a really nice way of the um, final scene is amazing yeah that's nice way yeah. of just describing it's that like so kind of out of the blue but at the same time if you think about it in context of the rest of the film and you know where where is meaning and how do we Ghana meaning from life. It's so interesting. Yeah, it is. It's brilliant. Anyway, yeah, I couldn't really help but put that no. at number one. No, that was almost on my list, Andy. So yeah. it's lucky. Great choice. Oh. Overlap. Sometimes reality is the strangest fantasy of all. <laughs> One last film, I just want to give a quick shout out, even though it didn't quite make my list, that I really love. His Women, He's Undressed, the Gillian Armstrong film about Australia's own um, Ori Kelly, Kelly. the designer in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. He won three Academy Awards for Best Costume Design in Hollywood. That's a, a brilliant documentary, I think, just with lots of talking heads. It's very interesting, very beautiful. It's worth a look. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes, we do need to mention that film. Well, thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 41 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be extremely grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. You can find me at Eloise Lowe Ross. And you can find me at Joanna DiMattia. And we'll be back in two weeks' time with Anders as back on the team. Yeah, yeah, Anders. Yeah, yeah Anders. Yay. <laughs> <laughs>